This is the first episode for Story Kinetics where we're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be watching a movie every single week and doing a deconstruction, a detailed deep dive into the structure, the themes, um, and the actual craft of each movie. And then we're going to kind of shift from analysis to criticism and... Uh, and talk about it mainly from the perspective of writers, of screenwriting, and hopefully we'll, we'll, this will be a tool that people can use to kind of become familiar with um, not only the kind of uh, template for story structure and um, general theories of structure, but also see how other successful artists have uh, pulled off their storytelling and, and pulled off some good screenwriting. Um, so, so what we're going to do is kind of go through the, the template, go through the structure, um, and have a detailed discussion about it. And um, and see what we can learn from it. Just kind of excavate it like a like a vivisection, you know, something that's living because it's art, it's living, and we're going to uh, see what we can learn from it. Also on the pod today, we've got Jay Money Teo. How you doing, Jay? I'm doing great, Todd. Thanks for asking. You just go by Jay. That's fine. But I mean, Jay Money is also fine. Um, since we're everybody loves self- money. <laughs> that's true. Since we're doing self-introductions, uh, I am an actor, a writer, and a director. I'm kind of just getting started. I've worked with Adam on a couple of things here and there, and really excited to be on the podcast and start deconstructing movies. Yeah, man. Very talented guy. Jay is one of my one go-to guys to, to work on in production, producing, uh, everything we need to do. Like He's the guy. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, and then Todd is a fantastic uh, writer, director, producer, and comedian. Uh, one of the things that I love about Todd is he's one of my favorite stand-up comedians. Um, oh, tell, thank us, you. tell us a little bit about yourself, Todd. Well, I am a stand-up comedian as well as a, uh, a story consultant and uh, a writer as well. Uh, I uh, work in production whenever I can. And yeah, that's, that's basically it. Adam Skelter, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a writer, director, uh, artist, concept artist, story artist. I've worked in the industry over 15 years in uh, everything from feature, television, games. Uh, so I've gone, done the whole gambit, live action and animation. Um, and I've been really lucky. My, my career has been really cool. I've gotten to work on a lot of cool projects and uh, sold a script and uh, keep on uh, having several other scripts in, in development. So um so yeah, I've I've gotten to work with really talented people and learned a lot from them. So this this is what uh, this is what I want to get across in the in the podcast is a lot of the lessons that we've learned and and discuss uh, how we can help other people become better at their craft. Hey, it looks like it's time for story bites. Story bites. So story bites is just where we review one story element at a time and uh, do a quick introductory discussion on it. Adam, tell me about Sorkin's altar. Sorkin is famous for saying, I worship at the altar of intention and obstacle. So um, so basically what that is, is that that's the, that's the essence of what story comes down to. It's the basic principle of a character wants to achieve a certain specific goal. That, that want, that desire is their intention. And every single scene is about the obstacles that they're facing. So these, um, so uh, if you look at this this diagram every single scene every single sequence every single act is about addressing a, a character trying to pursue some sort of objective it's and uh so the intention and the obstacle are integral to that storytelling um so basically when you're when you're sitting and you're writing uh and you feel like the scene is pretty much people talking about something you just want to convey to the audience 
um, that isn't necessarily a character trying to pursue something. So what you want to do is ask yourself every single scene, what is the character's intention? How is this scene getting them closer to their goal? And what is impeding them from it? That's at the core of, of uh, Sorkin's altar. That's what's, um, that's what's uh, driving the drama. And that's where we find all the tension uh, from every aspect of the character. So that's that, that. This I would say is if you can understand this basic principle of Sorkin's altar, you're going to be able to uh, structure all of your scenes around telling strong storytelling about it's about a character pursuing an objective, facing the obstacles. I don't know. I, I never really thought about Sorkin's altar in the way that you put it together, but uh, I, I do think that it's always something that most writers try to practice at some point in, in the fact that every scene has some conflict mm -hmm. and that, that's usually a driving force for, for a lot of people when they're writing scenes and in, in movies and uh, to any kind of story. It's true though. Like conflict, I would define conflict specifically as the relationship between intention and obstacle. A conflict, you don't have a conflict until two people or one person wants something and something gets in their way. That's literally the definition of conflict. Right. Yeah. yeah and I think you're just breaking it down to its elements of like, how do you make conflict? Yeah, and so Sorkin's altar is a way to actually build that conflict, make your your scenes and story interesting, and, and to give it a direction to go in. Yeah, yeah totally. Have you heard that quote before by Sorkin? Uh, I had not until so just right now. Oh, okay, cool, cool. One of the reasons why I think that Sorkin may have emphasized the the uh, the obstacle is because a lot of times that I believe in the scripts that I've read in development. I see authors and writers having a hard time making sure that they get their agenda in as well as um, moving a scene forward. And ultimately, and what I mean by agenda is basically they have something they definitely want to show in a scene, but maybe that's not necessarily needed for the scene itself. Uh, for instance, there was, a, there was one I was reading about a uh, courtroom scene and they were constantly trying to get back to the idea that, um, you know, this judge is obviously corrupt and this woman who's, who's, uh, they're kind of um, dealing with status. So we, we see the judge up high and the poor woman down below. And, and we see this as kind of an expository moment that was really important to the author. But ultimately, all we wanted to know was whether or not she was going to jail. And, and yeah. a lot of times we forget that, you know what, all that stuff is really interesting to you, but ultimately it's not going to translate to your audience. If you don't have an obstacle, if you don't have an immediate thing to overcome through your, through your scene, you're going to end up losing your audience. That's a really good point. I, I, that was really well said. I agree. Every single scene, you need to be able to identify the obstacle and the intention. Mm -hmm. And uh, and if you can't, then you're you're spinning your wheels dramatically. Or, or yeah. usually, what happens is you're just expositing. Often, you're just having a character give a speech, which yeah. you know that's that's usually the death of drama right there. Yeah. Uh, cool. Good point. Really good point. Yeah. Me. Right on. Hey guys, it's time for the asshole. Look at the asshole. The asshole is where our audience members get to ask Adam, Jay, or myself. Uh, a question. Today's Ask Cole question is, how do I add more subtext to a scene? 
I mean, for starters, I, I think a way that I try, am able to add more subtext into the scenes that I write is by including it in my outlines. So trying to define that subtext as much as possible. And then when I'm actually writing the scenes, I think it comes through a little bit better if I know exactly what I'm trying to portray in the subtext. Yeah. What about you? Is, is there anything that you do? Well, you know what, real quick, let, let's, let's define subtext specifically. So, sure. um, so subtext, and we'll get into this more in depth as we go along, but subtext is basically when uh, you have the text, the subtext, and the context. Now the text is the words on the page, right? The subtext is the intention of the character. It's it's what they want. And that's what I like about this question that relates so well to Sorkin's Alter is that subtext is the intention and the emotional charge of it. And the context is the the conflict that you're facing in the scene. So if you have a set piece where uh, a guy is holding a bus hostage and he's um, he's got a, a young woman in his arm and he's pointing a gun at her. That's the context, which means everything he's saying is expressing something to achieve a goal in there. So everybody has a specific goal. So context is conflict. Subtext is the intention. And text is the words that are actually the words and the action that are actually on the script and on the page. Um, so subtext really comes down to uh, describing what people want, how they want it, and what the strategies and tactics they use to, uh, to achieve their objectives. Um, so I think this is a little bit of a fallacy in that like a lot of people say, how can I add more subtext? Usually what they think is uh, in a scene, they're like, they're just not getting a really powerful emotional experience and they want the emotion to be on the page. They want it to come across in their characters. And what's, so they think, okay, if I just add more subtext, then it's going to dial up the emotional experience. When the truth of it is, is actual subtext means you are building that. And if you want to really understand subtext, read Hemingway. He is, he's somebody that I learned a great deal from just reading the kind of emotional aggregate. He writes very simple, very sparse, but at the same time, as you're reading, you slowly realize that you're feeling things. He conveys a great deal of emotion using very simple language. Um, and I think a lot of the best screenwriters have that exact same effect. They're, they're creating emotion um, uh, by, by uh, understanding that it's about the, the intention that comes across. Uh, have, you ever guys, have you guys ever heard of that old, um, uh, it was that Belle Epoque era, a lot of the screenwriters, or a lot of the writers were kind of challenging each other to make the, write the most emotionally charged sentence uh, in mm -hmm. as few a words as possible. Have yeah. you guys heard that story about Hemingway? Yeah, I have. Yeah, and he came up with a six-word sentence mm -hmm. that is powerfully emotional. Do you know what the sentence is? I, f I forget it, but I, I remember doing this in Ron Mita's class, actually. Oh, really? He talked <laughs> about it? Yeah, we, and we had to write our own like, six-word sentence. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah Ron Mita's the man. But I don't remember the sentence. <laughs> um, I, what was the sentence, Todd? For sale, baby shoes never worn yeah so it's very simple for sale baby shoes never worn six words combine create a context that is devastating because then you imagine the whole other emotional experience that's implied from that so the subtext is largely implicit it's it's the emotional context that we uh that we lend to it that's the real power of subtext um, so I, I strongly recommend read Judith Weston and read Hemingway 
um, to really delve into like seeing how people maneuver subtext in a really masterful way. I, uh, I have an experience of teaching that concept uh, to a bunch of 13 year olds, based 13, 14 year olds. And the subtext, oh, wow. it was completely lost on them. It was hilarious there. I, I said, okay, guys, because, you know, I'm telling this really intense story and I'm telling them not only can I tell a, a, a resonant story in less than 100 words, I can tell it in less than 10 words. And uh, the kids are like all kind of leaning in and I'm like, and then I give them the, you know, the one-two punch, the for sale baby shoes never worn. And then they all kind of went, Why are they selling the shoes if they've never worn the shoes? They're like, you mean Craigslist? <laughs> yeah, that was like the worst. It was like the worst time ever. Oh my gosh, it was ridiculous. But anyway. I mean, that does speak to another thing about the story is like audience. subtext means you're speaking to a specific audience. Yeah, you are speaking, so you're speaking to a, a certain much maturity more sophisticated level. Audience. Which, you know, it, it gets back to a lot of the frustration that writers face when they're writing something that has an incredibly complex emotional subtext. And, you know, it's producers, even if the producers get it, they're going to be like, it's going to be lost on the audience. Well, I mean, mm. who's to say that baby just didn't like the color of the shoes? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things it was... <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of it. You're right. This is you completely undermined the whole devastation. Hemingway's weeping in his grave. Hey, um, I remember uh, <laughs> the one thing that you that kind of breaches this, broaches the subject a little bit is in adaptation when Kaufman's brother, you know, the screw up brother, twin guy, yeah, who's like, I'm making this great movie. It's called. It's about a guy who's chasing a serial killer. He realizes that it's. It's him. I call himself. it the three. He's chasing himself. I call it the three. And it was like, <laughs> just Coffin's response to that is just so freaking funny. And I mean, <laughs> Nick Cave did it perfectly because it's like, you know, I, how many times, um, Adam or, or Jay, how many times have you heard that pitch literally? Like, yeah. honestly, like a million times <laughs> by screenwriters that are just kind yeah. of starting and they're like, he's chasing himself. It's like the twist is the detective is the murderer. Oh, yeah. I've done <laughs> some short stories like that in, yeah. in the past. We all have. It's like you almost it's like a rite of passage. You have to write that mm -hmm. now. I mean, you got to get it out of the way. You got to get it out of the way. Yeah, I, I did see. Have you guys seen uh, Marcella on Netflix? Marcella? No, no I haven't. So actually, I thought it was pretty clever, not not to give too many spoilers, but the premise is a detective that thinks she might have committed the murder mm. that they're investigating, but she's not oh. sure. So she has to trace her own steps to see if she did it. And it's it's great tension. The first few episodes are really, really well written. All right, guys, let's jump into vivisection. You want a vivisection. Cool. Thanks, Todd. Um, I I want to I want to start off with a question for Jay. You're out in the cornfield one night, mm -hmm. and you come across a naked, homeless man. You lay out little Reese's pieces to lure him back to your house. What do you do with him? Hey, look, if this is about last Saturday, I didn't do it. I wasn't there. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking. What I'm really thinking, though, let's be serious. This homeless man's probably going to take advantage of me. So the real question is, what is he, what is he plotting? What is he plotting in the cornfield? Yeah. Yeah. He, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> well, Steven Spielberg had that same idea. Uh, but what if it was an alien? Uh, so today's uh, vivisection, we're going to be diving into the classic 1980s movie, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. It's actually one of my favorite movies. I, I love this movie. I saw it in theaters when I was a little kid, and it's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. Um, Not to upstage you or anything, but I think this is Todd's favorite movie. Oh, you think so? Mm, yeah. It is, actually. It's one of them. It gives you that idea. <laughs> oh, there it is with the t-shirt. It is. Yeah. You got the merch. We're gonna be we're gonna be talking about AT the extraterrestrial today. Uh, Jay, why don't you jump in with a recap? Sure, sure. So, um, ET. It was released in 1982, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson, and it's starring Henry Thomas as Elliot and Drew Barrymore as Gertie. Uh, the budget was estimated at about ten and a half million dollars at the time. It was a huge budget. Major blockbuster. Um, E.T. is about a hyper-intelligent alien that's abandoned on Earth, and then he seduces a 10-year-old boy named Elliot. Uh, This alien, he's involved with some hijinks like getting Elliot drunk, faking their own death, and after causing all this chaos and pandemonium in in, uh, north of Los Angeles, E.T., he he just leaves. (laughs) So he, like, completely screws over this little kid. And leaves. Um, I, I totally take exception to seduces. There is no sexual content to this at all. I disagree. All right. Make your case. There, there's, I mean, E.T.'s fingers are dicks. <laughs> Let's start with that. Oh, my God. And Elliot is essentially a fatherless boy, 10-year-old at the time. Of, of the beginning of this movie. <laughs> You're ruining my childhood. E.T. is this hyper-intelligent alien. You don't think he knows? I don't, you don't, I don't think know he if he's hyper-intelligent. You don't think he's hyper-intelligent? He's I an alien know. botanist that traveled from God knows where. <laughs> you don't think he's intelligent? I mean, yes, he's intelligent, but I, I don't know if he's hyper-intelligent. He, he starts picking up on the English language within the course of this movie. I mean, you know, I've lived in a foreign country. I was speaking the language in a couple... I, I was saying a few words in a couple weeks. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not hyper-intelligent. Yeah, but you had a human language to start you off. Yeah, and where was that country? Mexico. Yeah, I'm sure that's a little easier to pick up on than yeah. a language spoken by different species. Yeah, it's true. We have the same basis. A lot of comments. Uh, <laughs> I, I, okay, so there is... All joking aside, there is ridiculous conspiracy theories about E.T. being uh, some sort of uh, Illuminati predatory pedophile thing. What I don't buy it for a second. I wouldn't go that far, but I, I do think there's some truth to my synopsis for E.T. And, and I stand by it. So I, I don't know what. We'll let everyone else decide. <laughs> I, I mean, ultimately, it, it, I, I think you can you can take that cynical filter and apply that to anything that's a children's story and just say, mm-hmm. oh, this is, you know, if you sexualize anything, if you apply this to anything that's children's entertainment, you're you. But ultimately, it's like it's gross. Why would you want to do that? Like, 
um, like children need to be entertained and they need to see stories about friendships and uh, dealing with complex emotional uh, emotional things. Um, and you know that's that's where imagination is fostered, developed, and cultivated. Um, so this idea of like every single story for kids is somehow uh, predatory or uh, sexualized in some ways. Just uh, we don't need to go there. <laughs> Say what you will. Uh, you know, maybe 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 we're not talking about some sexual misconduct. But ET, you said seduces. Yeah, but ET definitely took advantage of this little boy. Took advantage. Mm-hmm. Go with go where you want with that with that <laughs> okay. sentence. Um, getting into to some more details about ET. Mm-hmm. I opened almost the twelve million its first weekend, and I believe it was the highest grossing film of all time until Jurassic Park. Wow. And then Jurassic Park, like surpassed it. Yes, and then like the the first year. Uh, I, I believe yeah, it was the first year. Okay. I, I could be wrong about that, but Jurassic Park did surpass it, and then I think Star Wars and and then Disney started making. I know Titanic. Titanic started Marvel taking in some of those numbers too. Oh right, right, yeah, yeah. For a while, Titanic was up there as well. Hmm. Um, as far as the critical response, ET was very well received. Uh, it won four Oscars and also nominated uh, for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Cinematography in editing, and then at the Golden Globes that year, it also won Best Picture. Cool. Um, I would just say that the cultural impact of E.T. is huge. We've seen it referenced time and time again in like pretty much every long-running cartoon. Pretty sure there's Family Guy episodes and probably Simpsons episodes that I, I can't think of right now that, that reference it. And then we, we could talk about Roger from American Dad yeah. is E.T. Um, Right now, it has a 7.8 on IMDb, and it's 98 point, or sorry, 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's still very uh, highly regarded. And yeah. Cool. All right. That was really good. Thanks, man. Um, okay. So from, uh, from the recap, we want to uh, go into the structure. Now- mm, story structure. Now, as soon as we start to um, do a deconstruction of the story, uh, we, we want to go to first this uh, prototype, this, this diagram uh, for story kinetics. Now, this diagram is, is a prototype uh, in the sense that it's, um, you can reference it as uh, what movies generally kind of follow. Like, for example, within the first half hour is the first act. You have the first jump into the second act. Um, and then you usually have a midpoint. Now, the, the typical way of discussing uh, act structure is a three-act structure. And almost always they have a midpoint and that midpoint actually functions like the end of an act. But they usually say act one, act two, a two B and then act three. So I've just taken the liberty with my own um, my own writing uh, to call it what it is, which is four acts. So you have act one, act two, act three and act four. The midpoint separating act two and act three. so whenever we look at uh, a story, the first thing I want to identify is kind of getting the, the skeletal bones on which the rest of the story is built around. And I always start with the dramatic question. Uh, so first we, we start off with the dramatic question. Now the dramatic question is uh, directly addressing plot. Um, and it's defined specifically by will a character achieve X? Uh, and it's, it's what the plot hangs on. Now, we, most stories are usually about a deep internal emotional experience, but it's the external conflict that they face 
that forces them to deal with their internal machine, their internal psychological machine. Um, and so we, we hang this on the dramatic structure, which is first the dramatic question, uh, which poses the plot. It presents the, uh, the, the goal that they're trying to achieve. And then every single scene is one obstacle after another as they pursue this, this objective. Uh, and then from there, that's the, the first tentpole is a dramatic question. The second tentpole is the climax, which is the very end of the movie. It's the answer to the dramatic question. So the dramatic question is, it's a will they, won't they, yes, yes or no uh, question. Uh, and the climax is yes or no. And it, it illustrates how they, um, how they answer that question. So uh, what is the dramatic question for E.T. the extraterrestrial? Todd? Will Elliot um, help E.T. get home? Or would it be, will Elliot keep or uh, protect E.T., keep E.T.? Good. Very good. Yeah. Okay, yes. I, um, so, uh, first of all, you phrased that perfectly. Will Elliot, it's addressing the character, mm -hmm. achieve, and then what is the goal? Mm -hmm. And at first you said, will he help him get home? Now, uh, at first he doesn't know that that's the objective. Sure. We're actually close to the midpoint before he knows that E.T. is trying to get back home or that he even has the capacity of trying to get back home. Right. Um, but what Elliot knows that he wants is he wants to protect E.T. and he wants to have a kind of friendship with him. He wants him to be his best friend. At um, a lot like a boy and his dog. That's that's what I like. That's kind of how I look at this is ultimately this is, you know, it's, it's tapping into that like boy and his dog kind of story. Like when I was uh, about Elliot's age, my best friend was a little dog. A, a dog Spencer. He only lived about three years, but he went everywhere with me in the woods and reading books and all that stuff. Um, so this movie, you know, resonated with me a lot as a kid. Um, so yes, the so specifically, what does uh, Elliot want to protect ET from? What does he want to from? His family, from at first his family, the yeah. government Everybody. agents. At first, his family, or yeah, at who, first, who specifically in his family? His mom and his little sister. Yeah, and, and he does he does take precautions with his brother when he's first introducing him. Yeah, there are some precautions. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately, we actually know from the very beginning that Elliot has a bit of a libertarian leaning. What? Because from the very beginning, his they're, they're like she's like, we'll just we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit. But he basically says, she says, you know, we'll we'll call someone and have it taken away if you see it again. He says, but they're gonna they're gonna do tests on it and they're gonna give it a lobotomy. So right away he has this very this like kind of cynical idea of like whatever you do, don't let the government take the alien. Uh, <laughs> so so apparently uh, ET the extraterrestrial is libertarian propaganda. Um, <laughs> obviously, obviously. So the actually yes, the dramatic question is: uh, Will Elliot protect ET from the government? And that actually turns out to be the conflict he's facing every single scene. Uh, so what is the climax? What is the answer to the dramatic question? Jay? Yes. Yes what? Yes, he will protect E.T. for E.T. to get home. Cool. But with that climax in mind, maybe the dramatic question is, will E.T. get a full frontal hug from Elliot? <laughs> That's, that's, that's what happens during the climax. <laughs> you got some issues, man. Uh, you need to get man. some therapy. Oh, I mean, geez. 
I love you. We, we're going to work through this together, man. You're going to be fine. <laughs> You're going to be uh, fine, and it's okay. Uh, uh, it's uh, not your. It's not your fault. Why is ET naked? It's not your fault, Jay. Why is ET naked? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, I don't. I, I honestly don't know why ET is naked. I honestly, I think it goes back to. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was the impetus that started the whole idea for E.T. And a lot of the mythology of UFOs was, you know, these naked gray aliens running around. Mm -hmm. Maybe once you evolve past a certain point, you lose all shame. And maybe it has that whole, you know, if you want to delve into the metaphor, you know, it has that whole kind of innocence of like, you know, before the Garden of Eden when they ran around Mm -hmm. naked and were unaware of themselves. Um, But... uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know why he's naked. I genuinely don't. And it, and it creates a. There's a couple awkward scenes in there where you're just like, just cover it with a blanket. Right. Yeah. I mean, okay. So when when is the moment when the dramatic question is posed? When do we know? When do we shift from the first act into the second act? Uh, let's see. He was um, shoving ET into a closet. Mm-hmm. A little bit before that. Before the Reese's Pieces. It's, um, it's, it's when he like lures E.T. in, right? Yep, it's when he lures him in. So that's yeah. right at about 30 minutes, which is completely prototypical of most mainstream movies. Right at about 30 minutes, you finish your first act. He's lured E.T. into his room, and they have that kind of psychic moment where E.T. starts to fall asleep and Elliot starts to fall asleep. And it's almost like they're both kind of... Uh, drugged or something. How hyper intelligent could ET be if he falls for the whole Reese's pieces on the ground thing? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Uh, it is interesting. There is the, that whole like. See what I like um, is that they they present ET in such a way that you never see a really clear image of him until he's already inside the house. Before that, you see hands, you see silhouettes, you see like an eye or a face here or there. Um, mm-hmm. I do think it's funny that when E.T.'s walking around the house, he's like feeling everything as he's going along, almost like he's like monkey barring his way through, which I just think is like, you know, good old classic puppetry uh, storytelling. Um, what were well, you say, Todd? Well, okay, so maybe E.T. was like the janitor on the ship and he was like the dumb one that they were like, ha we we ditched E.T. back, you know, on <laughs> Earth. And then he's like this this dumb dude. That all he was, they hit, they're like, "Hey, ET, go get a plant uh, outside. Just go get one real quick. We're gonna go ahead and do our." Uh, you guys, you guys protocols. are ruining my childhood, uh, Todd. Yours, this was supposed to be one of your favorite movies. It is. This is one of my I favorites. absolutely love this film. I would. Um, I have to tell you, I I was in a special effects shop quite a few years back, and there was this large plaster cast, and I asked this guy Steve. I was like, Steve, so uh, what is that thing? And he um, he said, well, that's, that's E.T. Wow. I was like, what? That is not E.T. He's like, no, it's not. And he opened it up and it was the, there was the eyes that were cut out and everything. It was freaking E.T. Wow. And that's I was like, awesome. oh, yeah. Anyway. That's so cool. But yeah, no, that's, I love was E.T. That, was that Stan Winston that did the effects on that? I'm not sure. I know the guy who did the cast for it, you know, Steve Hill. Cool. All right, so we've got the dramatic question. Uh, the moment is po- the the moment we go from Act One to Act Two is when ET comes into the house, and from that moment on, 
Elliot closes the door and says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be your caretaker, right? Um, and that's when we go into Act 2. So from there, um, we want to... Uh, we want to identify the major, the, the secondary kind of uh, uh, bones of the structure of the story. So we've got the dramatic question. We've got the climax. From there, we want to go to the impetus. Now, the impetus is something that a lot of people refer to as the inciting incident um, or the point of attack or the catalyst. Um, I use the word impetus specifically because impetus means the beginning of a whole process. It's the, it's what initiates everything. Uh, Adam, that's not... That's not something no, people normally use, right? I mean, I've never no, heard no. the word impetus before. That's your your thing, right? Yeah, um, and the reason why is because most people refer to it as the inciting incident, mm. um, and uh, and the problem is that you know every single incident incites the next scene. So for every single scene has a kind of inciting incident. Every sequence has an inciting incident. So I don't think it's specific enough. Other people, um, like uh, people that use, say, the cat paradigm, uh, I believe Snyder refers to it as the catalyst. That's not accurate enough because a catalyst, chemically speaking, is an agent that uh, speeds up a chemical reaction. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the implication of that is it's the chemical reaction is already going to happen. The catalyst just speeds it up. Mm. Um, but that's not uh, when we look at actual story kinetics, the actual movement of story. An impetus is the introduction of a problem that, that you're going to solve. It's the moment that the world is thrown out of balance. And this character is now uh, either uh, presented with an opportunity or a threat. Mm. Um, now, so in the case of E.T. the extraterrestrial, what is the impetus? What is the opportunity or the threat that's that's presented? Yeah, that's when uh, Elliot first sees E.T., right? Cool, yeah. Why is that the impetus? Um, I mean, that sparks his curiosity to later go on to him luring E.T. into his house. Yep, exactly. Um, and that So that becomes the opportunity. There's implications of a threat in there, but for him, for Elliot, it's an opportunity to connect with something. Um, which gets into the character motivations, which we're going to talk to. But the whole point of dramatic structure is to help us uh, present the plot in such a way that it reveals the inner conflict and the inner machine of the character. And we explore their, their uh, individual values and worldview um, and then kind of splay it out uh, as, as we go through the whole character arc. And then uh, from, the, from the impetus, uh, the next major marker we want to look for is the midpoint. Um, now, in E.T., what, what was that midpoint? Now, real quick, the midpoint is usually uh, the moment where the characters think they're going to achieve their goal. They're going to solve the problem that they've been trying to solve the entire story, and they think they're about to achieve it. Then all of a sudden, the floor drops out, and they realize they're further away from, uh, from achieving their goal than they ever were. So usually, the act two is all about you uh, exhibiting the strengths of the character. Um, they're using their old world view to solve the problems. And then at the midpoint, they start to realize, wait, the way I'm solving these problems isn't working. So their, their, uh, their tactics and strategies for the, first, for the second act um, look like they're getting success. And then the midpoint hits and everything becomes reactionary and all of their weaknesses are exposed. So act two is about the, the strengths and act three is usually about exhibiting and displaying the weaknesses of the character. So in E.T., what is that, what is that midpoint? What is that turning point? 
So for E.T., it's Halloween night. Cool. Why do you say it's Halloween night? Um, that, that's, that's where they first, or that's where E.T. first tries to phone home. Cool. And, and we home. see how unsuccessful he is in that. Cool. So why, why does that make it the midpoint? Because it's successful. Like, he is able to start the process. Yeah, yeah I guess home. technically he does. He does start the process, but uh, it's really dramatic. They find him laying in the river. Yeah. The next morning, and, and um, it's kind of like the point where things start going bad for them. Yeah, things start going bad for them. Um, and, and at the core, the, the midpoint we can really see in relation to the, to, to the dramatic question. And again, the dramatic question is, will E.T. protect uh, uh, will Elliot protect E.T. So um, the midpoint is when suddenly Elliot starts to realize, oh, he wants to go home. I'm not going to get to take care of him for long. And from that point on, everything Elliot's doing is beyond his reach to be able to protect E.T. He's, he's doing everything he can, and it's not enough. So he starts to become more desperate. And that's when we start to see his 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 sacred value is he wants to hold on to E.T. He wants to keep him close and protect him. Um, but the world is saying this is something that's beyond your control and you're going to have to adapt. That's that moral imperative that he's address he's addressing that we're going to get into a little bit, which is why that is the midpoint. When he phones home, uh, there's that really sad, sweet moment where Henry Thomas goes up to E.T. and he says, you could stay here. You could you could stay with me. Uh, I could take care of you. And E.T. is basically, uh, no, I'm going to I'm going to go home. But but thanks, kid. You know, but it, it's that it's that moment that Elliot realizes that this is not going to be he's, it's not going to fill the hole in his heart that he's trying to fill. And it, it creates a kind of desperation in uh, Elliot's character. Um, so from the midpoint, um, we want to stake out the next major landmark which is uh, the low point. Um, so in ET, now the low point is usually when um, they've exhausted every strategy they know. They've done nothing but like react, um, kind of uh, uh, all of the problems have demonstrated that they're beyond their control to be able to solve the problem. They don't have the tools they need to be able to solve the problem. Um, and they feel completely disappointed to the point where they just give up and there doesn't seem like there's any hope. Uh, classically, uh, a lot of people refer to this as like the long dark night of the soul, or the low point, or the or the the, the moment of no hope. Um, and the purpose of this is to really show to force the character to have to uh, look inward and reevaluate their own value system. That's you know, generally speaking, if you're if you're going with a story that has an arc in it, has a character arc in it, then the point of the low point is to uh, to show the character um, forcing themselves to have to adapt to a new worldview. Uh, so what is the little point in E.T., Todd? Um, it's it's where uh, E.T. dies. Like, it, it, Elliot can no longer feel it, the connection between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Why is that the low point? I mean, it's kind of obvious, but like, you know, oh, but, I mean, but, it's you know. definitely emotionally the lowest point, uh, the most difficult yeah. point in in the plot. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it, it relates to the dramatic question. The, um, you know, the dramatic question is, will he protect him? And in that moment, he's failed E.T. He does not. He completely fails at his objective. Yeah. Um, and it's completely beyond his control. So there, so it's what forces him to realize I need to, 
stop trying to hold on to him. Him trying to hold on to E.T., keep him here on Earth, is killing E.T. And because of the, the telekinetic connection, um, they're, um, it's also killing him as well. Uh, until you know, until he completely severs the bond. Um, cool. So we've got the we've got the impetus, which is the introduction of an alien. Dramatic question: Will Elliot protect him? The midpoint: uh, ET phones home, and the low point: ET dies. Um, and this, so from there, these major landmarks, we can kind of track the overall emotional journey. Um, and this this emotional journey is what kind of gives us the roller coaster, like. Uh, a lot of times, most of the time when we're dealing with pacing, it's not really a problem of like, you know, how fast are we solving problems? More it's an issue of are we emotionally investing and are those emotions changing from scene to scene? That's one thing I really learned a lot from studying um, uh, Story by Robert McKee. He emphasizes that every single scene has a kind of value charge or an emotional shift and that turn. Um, because when we're, when we're watching a story, when we're reading, we are engaged primarily in the emotional journey of the character. Um, and it's not, that's why a lot of stories that tend to just be, you know, like Dan Brown, he's really great at structuring kind of uh, setups and payoffs, but ultimately his character is not having uh, powerful emotional reactions to things. Mm. He's largely there to serve as kind of a vehicle to kind of see the world that he's running through. So it's very much, a, it, it's, it's more just kind of a, a um, a historical exposition of a uh, roller coaster. Mm. But the real emotional stories, the stories that we feel, are characters constantly negotiating stakes and dealing with threats and uh, coming closer and further away from their objectives. And that's where we get all the tension that we that we deal with. Um, so this this emotional arc, uh, these these major landmarks, the impetus, dramatic point or dramatic question, midpoint, low point, and climax, stake out the larger movements of the um, of the emotional roller coaster. Um, so there's one one last major landmark that we need to uh, identify, which is the hook. What is the hook in ET? Jay. Oh, um, the hook is just that opening scene, like the whole opening section. I would say penis breath. <laughs> when Elliot <Yeah>. calls <laughs> another he calls kid. calls his brother penis breath. Yeah, it's his brother. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, so Elliot calls his brother penis breath in front of his mom. His mom laughs. You know, that's not... 15 minutes in. Is that really? Yeah. Okay, so that's the end of the yeah. That's actually That's actually after the impetus. Oh, is it really? Yeah. I'm getting my timelines all mixed up. <laughs> the real hook of E.T., though, is that opening scene with E.T. trying to run back to a ship as they're uh, being discovered by government agents. Yeah, it's, it's this image right here that really uh, seals it, where we see E.T. with the glowing heart and that UFO flying off into the space, into the constellations, realizing, oh, shit, I'm stuck here on Earth. That's that's where that's E.T.'s impetus, you know, but it's it's a great hook. Um, it's beautifully shot. That's uh, Spielberg is one of the great cinematic storytellers of our time. And you just you you feel it. And it's largely told through silhouettes uh, and you feel the tension. It's magical. It's fun. It's playful. Um, and it creates this kind of mystery. And you're like, OK, where is this going to go? Um, so so from there, that hook is what sends us off into the story. Um if you look really close, 
Adam at the the UFO or the uh-huh. spaceship that's taken off. Yeah. You look at, look really close at it. You can see in the windows there's a bunch of little ET dudes flipping him off as they leave. <laughs> They're like, "Ha ha, we ditched the janitor." <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's funny that E.T. is like the dumbest dude on the on the crew. He's like <laughs> like all the other. He's like, like Ralph Mouth of the. <laughs> all the other E.T.s are like fluent and like they speak perfect yeah. English, and they're like, like, oh crap, he doesn't even know how to speak English. <laughs> <laughs> we left him all alone. Uh, and eh, he'll be all right. I'd still watch that. Um, yeah. Okay, and then well, it's um, kind of like yeah. So, and then one other uh, structural uh, landmark that is, it's kind of secondary to it, is the subplot. Um, and the subplot is simply just a, a plot or a, a dramatic question or a, a kind of mini objective that the character faces uh, that doesn't necessarily have to do with the overall plot. It doesn't get them closer or further away from solving their, their problem, but it does tend to reveal more about the character and kind of plays along with the theme. Uh, what... What is the subplot, Todd, for, that we uh, see in that second act? The subplot of uh, of ET is yeah. uh, Elliot's um, Elliot. Honestly, Elliot's uh, um, trying to come to terms with his father's uh, or his parents' divorce. That's his inner conflict. Um, so. so- so this, um, <laughs> so the subplot is a temp, is a temporary, tangible objective that it's a discrete objective within the larger plot that they're trying to accomplish. Oh right, okay. So it's like when they order the pizza. <laughs> they order the pizza and then like they step on the pizza and they're like, ah, penis breath, you know. <laughs> this is our low point. Subplot. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a little yeah. All right, Jay. No. Jay thinks he knows. Yeah. So supply. So supply in ET. An example of it would be Elliot's day at school when ET's at home. Exactly. That's exactly right. So why is that the subplot? Um, because if you took those scenes out of the movie, it wouldn't really affect the the main plot. Yeah. Exactly. The, you don't have to have a scene like that shows like, well, so what is E.T. going to do while Elliot goes to school? Because Elliot's going to have to go to school sooner or later. Um, you don't have to have that scene. But it served the story in a really productive way. What did we learn from that sub- subplot? Um, we got some character development. Some character development of Elliot and E.T. And we got some funny scenes. Yeah. Um, also, E.T. got Elliot drunk. So if, if you're trying to say that he's not trying to take advantage <laughs> of this little kid, Dang, then dude. why did he drink those beers? That's dark. I'm not even going to dignify that. Because um, you know I'm right. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, so, so the most important thing is that developed their character. Uh, it's also a set piece. Now, a set piece is uh, pretty much it, it's, a, it's a specific problem you need to solve in a scene. Um, every single scene should have a kind of every single scene needs conflict. Every single scene should have uh, some objective and an obstacle that you're trying to overcome. But a set piece is usually a kind of specific kind of puzzle uh, that you're trying to uh, overcome. Like, for example, um, the air conditioning duct scene in Die Hard. That's a whole set piece. They're navigating the elevator. That's a set piece. Uh, so this subplot is uh, how uh, the whole point of it is to show how emotionally and psychically connected E.T. and Elliot are becoming. Uh, 
that they're feeling each other's feelings, which ties directly into the theme, which is this whole story is all about Elliot learning to feel what other people feel and make make his decisions with a greater sense of empathy for other people. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a solid subplot. Um, so once we've kind of staked out these these major uh uh, ups and downs, these major landmarks, then we can start to go into the specifics. Uh, then we learn, we start to learn more about the protagonist and the character, um, which leads us to character and theme. When we're deconstructing character and theme, I have a very specific kind of approach. Uh, I start with the conscious desire, which is the the intention or the, the desire the character knows that they want. It's the problem they want to solve. So in E.T.'s case, you know, it's the conscious desire is always the dramatic question. It's the plot of the story. Um, and then from there, we go to the unconscious drive, which is the, the value system within the character that's driving them toward that unconscious desire or that conscious desire. So it's uh, so the conscious desire is what they want. The unconscious drive is why they want it. And then embedded deep within that unconscious drive is kind of an Achilles heel, which is a kind of weakness or uh, in, uh, a wrong belief or an inadequate value system that is sabotaging them from achieving what they want. So basically, uh, the, the whole point of the, the dramatic question is that it's an external conflict that drives the character to have to learn a new lesson that resolves that, uh, that Achilles heel. Um, and then from there, the moral imperative is the source of all of the conflict. Um, it is the moral dimension um, to to all the conflicts that they're that they're confronting. And the reason it's an imperative is because the character is going to have to face this moral dimension if they want to achieve their goal. And in other words, uh, the moral imperative is always in direct contrast or always in direct conflict with the Achilles heel. Uh, the Achilles heel is the lesson the character needs to learn, and the moral imperative is um, is the force that's uh, that they have to reckon with in order to learn that lesson. Uh, and of course, as they navigate the moral imperative, whether they are able to navigate it, how they navigate it, and ultimately the the resolution of that is what illustrates the theme. Um, and again, the theme is a moral proposition of the way the world works. Okay, um, so from so in Elliot's case, let's let's start with the external. What is Elliot's conscious desire? It's directly connected to the dramatic question. Yeah, that's his desire to protect ET. Exactly. So from there, we have this unconscious drive. Um, now, with with his unconscious drive, this is usually where we have to kind of do a little bit of detective work. We have to start looking at the clues. Sometimes it's explicit. Um, sometimes it's, you know, somebody, uh, a stranger sees another stranger dangling from a cliff and they're willing to reach over that cliff and pull somebody up. You know, some people aren't willing to do that. So, you know, the, the, the question becomes, what is driving them to make that kind of decision? What is driving, what is their world value system that, that, uh, you know, like why is Elliot willing to go through so much effort to risk emotional damage and even risk hanging out with a strange alien creature um, when he could easily just ignore the creature out in the cornfield. There's something about him that makes him want to go out into the darkness and bring this creature back and take care of him. Um, 
And I think for that, we need to look really specifically at the emotional scenes. And usually this is what the first act is for. The whole point of the first act is to present the character and give us a sense of their normal world, the world they're actually navigating in the present. And the ideal is that we see them solving problems that reveal what's sacred, what's important to them. Uh, we see, and so what do we see? What do we learn from Elliot in the first act? What what's his family dynamic? What's what's his relationship with the kids around him? He seems to be um, the butt of the jokes. He's he's mm. he's kind of being alienated. Um, oh. <laughs> I, uh, that's true. You got his. It, you got his older brother, and all of his friends are playing Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. He wants to play. They're not letting him be a part of it, and they're like, "All right, if you go get the, uh, if you go get the pizza, then you can yeah. go play." Cool. What else? What are, What are some other things we learned in the first act about Elliot? Jay. Um, that his father's not in the picture. His father's not in the picture. Um, yeah. In fact, we we never really see his father in the entire movie. Which is which ends up playing a huge role. Um, there's this really emotionally s- kind of tender scene where things uh, reveal a lot about Elliot, and it's in. Uh, so usually in the first act, after the impetus comes, uh, we have a scene uh, where people are kind of negotiating stakes. The characters are negotiating stakes about whether they want to like. What are, the, what are the consequences of making certain decisions in order to engage the dramatic question? So in the case of E.T., the impetus is there's an alien out in the cornfield. And Elliot automatically is like, well, I want to take care of it. If it's an animal, I want to take care of it. If he's lost or alone or hungry, I want to help him. So it's, he's, a, you know, he's a compassionate kid. Um, and then the stakes are presented in that scene where they're kind of around the corn, around that uh, kitchen or uh, that, that dining table. And what's interesting about that is it's a triangle table, which is, you know, the, the suggestion is it's kind of an unusual shape for a dining table. And what I like about it is it kind of implies that there's a piece, there's a corner missing. It's, it's visually telling us this, this is these people all feel a kind of gap in their in their the way they're arranged around this uh, table um, and and it comes down to the scene where uh, Elliot says dad would believe me because they're you know they're all making fun of him uh, for seeing the spaceman and he says dad would believe me and everything kind of goes quiet and up to this point everyone's rowdy everyone's kind of loud and playful and lighthearted and then as soon as he says dad would believe me the scene kind of takes a downward turn um, and that's when his mom says, well, why don't, why don't you go call him? And that's, you know, we have the whole scene where he reveals, well, you know, dad's with Sally in Mexico and that just breaks her heart. Um, so that, so, uh, that scene, she ends up going to the, uh, to, to do the dishes to kind of like hide her emotions from her kids. The kids are totally aware of what she's feeling. Um, especially the older brother, he's kind of protective of her. And she says, well, look, if, if you if you see it again, tell me and I'll call someone to have it taken away. And then immediately, you know, Gertie says, you know, like a like a dog catcher. And then Elliot says, um, but they'll give it a lobotomy or they'll just cut it up. So immediately you're seeing what the stakes are for Elliot. And you also see what his value system is. So you see that like him expressing the way he feels, expressing his desires and talking about what what he would use to connect with his father hurts his mother. 
and that's what drives him you know because the, the first question is if he finds a spaceman why would he keep it a secret why wouldn't he just bring it home and say hey mom i found a spaceman wake up there's a spaceman in my bedroom um but he takes the opposite tact he says i'm i'm going to take care of this creature and i'm going to keep it a secret all to myself and it's that scene that really tells us why he's doing it um which which illuminates his unconscious drive um, it all comes down to his relationship with his father um, and the fact that, you know, his father. I, um, do we know if they're going through a divorce or if the divorce is already been finalized? Is that ever addressed? I think it's final. I, mean, I think it's, 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 you get the idea that it's fresh, but it's over. But I can't. Okay. That yeah, I, I, I got the same idea that Todd did. Okay. My impression, too. Um yeah, and then you also have that scene uh, close to the midpoint where they're out in the garage and they find the dad's shirt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, um, and he specifically says, and this ties into what I think this, this movie is really about. He, um, he pulls out the shirt and they smell it. And he says, you remember when he used to take us to the ball game and then he used to take us to the movies and we did get in popcorn fights. And the movies play a huge role in the way they bonded with their father. And then what's interesting is that um, the older brother says, uh, what does he say? It's, um, he says it smells like, old, smells like Old Spice. Yeah, it smells like Old Spice. And then Elliot smells it. And do you remember what he says? Sea Breeze. Yeah, he sea says Sea Breeze. So I looked it up. And back in the 80s, Sea Breeze is what women would use for skincare. And it was a kind of, uh, so it's, he's saying it smells like mom. It doesn't smell like dad anymore. Which suggests that, um, in a way, it's uh, Elliot is thinking like, you know, we don't, we can't even smell our dad anymore. He's not even present in that way. So it's kind of like his mom is is, you know, just kind of playing that role for him, um, and that, and you can see the kind of sadness in there. Um, and even though his brother tries to reassure him, oh, I, I've got the slide right here. Yeah, see breeze. Um, so I think at, at his unconscious drive. Usually the unconscious drive is usually about a character trying to prove something. Uh, like in um, The Godfather, uh, Michael, uh, Michael Corleone, his whole unconscious drive is he wants to prove to his father that he can be the man. He can be worthy of being his son. Mm. Um, and I think in Elliot's case, he wants, to, he wants to hold on to his father's love. And I think that is what's driving him. I think that's what drives him to want to take care of E.T. E.T. becomes the embodiment of the secret of him feeling like he has to keep his, his, his love for his father a secret because he sees how much it hurts his mom. Um, so at the core of that is this Achilles heel, which ultimately his Achilles heel is that uh, Elliot believes he has to keep his feelings hidden from his mother to protect her. So that belief right there. Now the truth of it is, is him, his mom doesn't want him to not love his father. But he sees him missing his father. He sees how it hurts her. So in the brain of a nine-year-old, he starts, he starts kind of doing this math, this math equation of, uh, I'm, I, I know, like, dad not being here really hurts mom. But I really wish, I really miss dad. And that, I think, is really driving that kind of inner conflict of, of this, this false belief, this Achilles heel which is he needs to hide it from his mother in order to protect her from the feelings he's having. And I think that's ultimately what the moral imperative is going to uh, force him, 
Like he, he, he needs to learn that he shouldn't keep those feelings a secret, that it's not healthy for him to keep those feelings a secret. So, uh, so I think what I'm hearing you say is that his um, Achilles heel is his daddy issues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, not so much as I mean, daddy issues is a little broad, but specifically it's the belief that he should not show his feelings for his father to his mother. Like he misses and loves his dad and he misses and loves that his dad was always kind of reassuring to him. And like, you know, he, he would believe in. You know, like he even says, you know, dad would believe me. Um, and so because of that, yes, this this is largely a story about um, the absent father issues and the, and what a fe- what a family feels like or the emotional uh, process of, of dealing with a divorce and the separation of the parents. Um, and then the moral imperative that he faces is keeping secrets hurts the ones you love every single, you know, the first half, the act number two. Um, is all about him keeping a secret and it's almost like a game he's playing with his mom and it's like you know i'm going to outsmart her i'm going to get away with this it's it's totally going to work i'm going to keep this secret and then the third act is illustrating every single time how it's hurting him how it's hurting other people and ultimately he's not equipped to, to keep the secret in fact he shouldn't keep that secret so the moral imperative is what drives all of the external conflict that he faces um, which is forcing him toward resolving that Achilles heel, that that um, that false belief, which is what drives us to the ultimate theme. Um, and again, when we talk about character arcs, the moral imperative is what drives the character arc to resolve that conflict, which is why at the end of ET, the arc is complete when we can op- when Elliot can openly show his love for ET in front of his mother. There's that scene where he finally gets that, you know, the full, you know, body hug. I love you, E.T. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'll always be here. And there's this great shot where he hugs and then all of a sudden looks over his shoulder at his mom. And it's that connection. They cut right from one shot to the next to show that she says, basically she's saying it's okay to love him. It's a beautiful, very like below the surface kind of story. But once you tap into that's what Elliot is going through then that that scene has so much more meaning because it's it's about him hugging him hugging et is ultimately him saying to his mom can't i just love my dad is it okay or is it going to hurt you and she and that that moment of like affection and her saying like it's okay to love him that's what i think is in the subtext when we talk about subtext that's a beautiful scene for that reason it's loaded with subtext because all the intentions have built up over the time um which is what drives us to the theme, which is letting go is the best way to love someone. That's ultimately what Elliot learns from this whole experience. The best way for him to protect E.T. is to let him go back home. And that it's the most devastating thing. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's why him learning to keep secrets ultimately is sabotaging. Uh, his uh, he, it's him trying to hold on to somebody is why he's keeping those secrets. Once he learns to let go of ET, then he's uh, then he's able to address the moral imperative, and that's where his character art comes in. Now, in the, the interesting thing is, you know, I think that's a sad lesson to learn. Letting go of l- loving someone means letting go of them. Um, that 
probably, you know, that's where therapy comes in after mm-hmm. this. In ET2, then Elliot would learn love is also about, you know, learning to hold on to somebody or growing with somebody. And it's okay to love somebody and, you know, not have to let go. And you don't always have to say goodbye. Um, but this specific uh, rite of passage for Elliot is learning ultimately to, to, to allow his father to go on about his personal growth and still loving his father. And that's, that's what I think is the, the engine beneath all of this. This is why it's such a, for me, it's a powerful, beautiful story about a boy working through his feelings of loving his father, uh, despite also feeling like his father is, has hurt his family. And whether, you know, it asks that thematic question is, is it okay to love somebody who's hurt the family, but is still trying to live an authentic life for himself? And it's, it's not easily resolved. And that's why I think it's a beautiful film. It's, it's tapping into really beautiful themes. And this is a children's movie, you know? And that, that's why I think, like, really great, even really great children's movies still ask these big questions and address the huge, um, large moral uh, conflicts that we're all dealing with. Um, there we go. So um, uh, Spielberg is notorious for saying, he once said, I, want, I wanted E.T. to be about a family dealing with divorce. Elliot is this boy with a big hole in his life. And E.T. is about how he fills that, what he fills that hole with. Um, so even Spielberg was very conscious about uh, this, about E.T. being about a family uh, dealing with divorce and having a father being absent. Um, and what I, what, I, what I love about that is the way he cinematically reinforced that on a very unconscious level. For example, um, no adult male faces were seen throughout the entire movie. Like it, it was something that I didn't notice until uh, we were preparing for this uh, episode. Uh, rewatching it, there's that moment where um, Keys, his character's name Keys, uh, walks in wearing a hazmat suit and he walks up full uh, to the camera. We get a close up and we see his face for the first time up close and we see the full face. And I realized every single scene before that, every single male, we never saw the male's face, the adult male face. And I think that was Spielberg's way of saying that the father in Elliot's life has been removed. And it's every, every time we see the hunters, uh, like the, the government hunters that are looking for E.T., we're always seeing like pieces of their face. We're seeing silhouettes. Mm-hmm. We're seeing like the, the keys close up jangling uh, as they're running and chasing after E.T. Um, and it is not until the moment where Keys enters into the house and um, and he's that's his big introduction. Up till now, he's just been kind of a mystery. He's just been we've just seen Keys dangling on someone holding a flashlight. Which is why his character is literally called Keys in, in IMDb, um, and I think ultimately Keys represents that um, that new uh, the boyfriend that's going to not necessarily replace his father, but he's going to be introduced as a new role. Now I remember watching it as a kid, thinking, "Oh, uh, uh, Keys and Elliot's mom are going to fall in love," which is interesting because they only have like three scenes together. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I thought that too. Yeah, I thought that was that's where the movie was going. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and we're just using kind of cynic docu where you're just using little uh, elements like the hands, uh, the keys, uh, the the in the in physical interaction that he's saying this man represents the new boyfriend or the new husband that's going to be a part of the family, a new part of the family. 
um, which is interesting because when I remember the 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 school scene, I I, I always remember like I could have sworn that I remembered the the teacher's face. I, I remembered a guy with glasses and like thinning hair. Um, turns out I was remembering a scientist that comes up later in the movie. Um, so you never actually see the teacher's face. You just see the hands of the teacher picking up the picture of E.T., walking around. Uh, you see his tie and stuff like that. You see his belt. You only see the perspective from, from the kid's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a subtle way for Spielberg to say, like, the father is absent. The father figure is absent right. until the new boyfriend comes along. This all gets back to what, what I think E.T. is really all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so Spielberg uh, went through a divorce. Uh, or, or his family went through a divorce. His parents divorced about a year after he graduated high school. Um, and it had a powerful effect on him. Um, and uh, he said E.T. was you know, largely about a story about a boy dealing with that, that process of divorce. And I, you know, this is what I think e. makes E.T. such a personal film for Spielberg in particular. Because the way Spielberg dealt with that was film. And filmmaking and storytelling. That was a huge way for, for him as an artist to deal with his emotional conflicts was putting them in a kind of fictionalized context and working through those emotions, um, which is part of why I think E.T. is uh, I, it's why I think E.T. resonates specifically for America. Like we had, you know, divorce is becoming it, it's a very common part of it's almost a rite of passage for a lot of different families. Um, and I think E.T. actually kind of addresses that that issue. But I think specifically Spielberg is talking about how he filled that hole with divorce, which is filmmaking. I believe E.T. ultimately is a, a, a deliberate, specific, one-for-one metaphor for film itself. E.T. is film. Um, and we know that specifically because at the very end, we he climbs up uh, the, the ramp into the spaceship, and you've got a gate that's closing, and just as the door closes... It dilates close, which is exactly like an aperture on a camera. So I believe the UFOs <laughs> represent a film camera. Yeah, it makes sense. It does look like a camera. Exactly. And it's, it's a beautiful, simple way of saying, and on, directly on the other side, and a camera directly on the other side of the aperture is the film. And the last thing you see as the aperture is closing on the door is E.T.'s heart. So I believe Spielberg was saying uh-huh. E.T. represents filmmaking for him. Yeah. And this is the way that Spielberg dealt with, uh, with this kind of personal emotional uh, difficulty, so, which is what adds more beauty to it. E.T. represents film, and UFOs are a vehicle to literally transport us to a new world. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Beautiful. And that's what that's what I think is so beautiful about ET. It's not just a film uh, uh, about you know finding like a cool creature and taking care of the creature and the heartbreak that goes along with it. It's about the way we use stories uh, in a very metaphorical, poetic uh, sense. The way we use storytelling and specifically filmmaking to transport us to a new world and to deal with our own internal traumas and our own internal processes. Mm-hmm. That's what I think E.T. is about. It's about transporting us to another world. I love that. Boom!
So one one thing I, I think is also really interesting is this new dimension. I I, I have no idea if this is true, but I heard I, I heard some discussion uh, about a report recently that was released on autism. And what they found is uh, there's a new theory about autism that basically there's a strong correlation between um, the uh, proliferation of screens and uh, and uh, uh, child uh, and autism on the rise. So, like proliferation of screens with autism uh, are uh, proportionately on the increase. And there's some suggestion that uh, in early stages of life, when little children are uh, they're they're trying to build you know these kind of pathways of connection. So when you you know in early childhood development, you look at a baby and they smile and you smile, they cry and you give them uh, food or you hug them. It's it's creating this kind of connection and it's it's forming all these pathways. And so when you put a screen to in front of a child and they start smiling and they see a face of a cartoon character or something and it doesn't respond those those channels those synapses are not connecting and so the theory is now or a hypothesis i should say it's not even a theory the hypothesis is that um there that might have something to do with the way child's uh children are developing um emotional connections like most of autism is about being unable to read emotions in other people and read subtext in other people um so in a way E.T. has a new dimension. If, if, if E.T. is about film, um, it kind of plays into this idea of like, uh, you know, it is, is divorce in some way somehow informing uh, the, the rise of autism. Now, that, that goes down the whole conspiracy, conspiracy theory idea, but like, uh, but it could be an interesting commentary on uh, the relationship between, you know, filmmaking, storytelling, and, uh, you know, classically storytelling was always done face to face. It was a kind of way of like people sharing narratives and connecting with each other. Um, and E.T. on an allegorical level could largely be about how filmmaking is kind of um, intervening and becoming a kind of surrogate, um, which, you know, generates all sorts of interesting uh, conflict when you look at it allegorically as well. Mm-hmm. Huh. I wonder, uh, I wonder, um, I, I don't know why I thought of this, but uh, I wonder if that has any effect on adults that use television to learn other languages, mm. like on, on any level, if, if maybe that kind of affects learning languages too. Yeah, I don't know. I know that I didn't, uh, I tried learning Spanish when I was, you know, in middle school, like most kids, and I couldn't learn it. It was, mm-hmm. I had such a hard time. And then when I moved to Mexico and lived there, it was it wasn't until I had to survive using a language that the language becomes a tool. Mm-hmm. That's when all of a sudden I was able to speak and actually learned pretty quickly. Like I'm fluent in Spanish now, um, and it, it wasn't. So I'm I'm always fascinated when people can like you know try and learn by listening and just repeating things. It's not really until you go to somebody and say, "I need to use the bathroom," <laughs> and it actually gets you to the bathroom. That's when those words have weight and have actual emotional value to them. L- listening and repeating and chirping sounds that sound familiar is not the best way to learn language, but it, that's an interesting connection. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely a difficult way to learn a language. I think I've had a similar experience with Spanish. Yeah, 
Are you fluent in Spanish? No, I hardly, no, I hardly speak it. Oh, really? But I, I took it a lot in school, and it didn't get me anywhere. Yeah. But Teo, it, what, what is... Uh, it's a Spanish last name. Is it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my parents never taught me. If anything, they used it as a way to, like, speak about me in front of me without me knowing <laughs> what they were talking about. <laughs> so so I think part of me before. probably repressed it. Oh. And then, uh, but now, now as an adult, I'm a lot more interested, and in I pick up on it a little bit better. Yeah. So I've been trying to learn it, but I'm also learning Korean right now. So. Oh, that's wow. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Um, okay, so with with ET, uh, talked a little bit about what it's really about. Um, let's jump into shut your plot hole. Shut your plot hole. With shut your plot hole. Um, <laughs> We, we want to talk about plot holes. We're going to be applying this. This is really just, uh, this isn't necessarily saying, you know, every, every film has plot holes or we're not even trying to say that this is, uh, that these are plot holes. Um, sometimes this is just our way of switching from a mode of analysis and trying to understand what the story is saying, maybe what the artist intended, maybe not. Um, to shift it to criticism, looking at things critically. This is, you know, we want to be able to learn from things, even though we're, we're mostly choosing movies that we love because they affected us in some emotional way and informed our craft and informed or made us want to tell stories. Um, and I think part of that is part of the vivisection, the value of the vivisection is to identify their strengths, recognize their genius, but also learn from where they could have been maybe stronger um, and, uh, you know, and so we shift from the analytical to the critical. Um, and that's what shut your plot hole is all about. So I came up with a list of a few different, um, maybe weak plot points, maybe plot holes, uh, and just basically criticisms. And, uh, I thought we could talk about them and see what you guys think. If you, you, you guys tell me if you think this is a plot hole or not. Uh, so the first one I have is, um, probably the biggest one. If E.T. can levitate, if he can fly through the air, why didn't he fly up to the UFO at the very beginning when it was about to take off without him? Because he wanted to take advantage of Elliot. How was he going to do that on a spaceship? God. He planned the whole thing out. (laughs) So this whole thing was just an elaborate ruse. Yeah, 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 of course. Whatever he built in the forest... That I'm wasn't so going to contact us. So cynical. That wasn't going to contact us, <laughs> <an> alien spaceship. <laughs> a very special kind of first contact. Now, um, now we don't we, we don't get to understand all of his mystical powers. However, yeah, we don't have a, a really insight into the into ETs. I mean, the right. the truth is, we can explain we, we can explain away in a lot of ways, but ultimately, I mean, you could say, oh well, he didn't have the power to levitate until he synced his brain with a child, you know, or uh, synced uh, his brain with a, a person of this planet. You know what I mean? It's like you can say all that stuff, but ultimately, they didn't choose to explain any of that. And for some, I get the idea that he couldn't levitate at that moment. It was really only when he really needed to that he was able to. So it's kind of the Superman thing where like Superman can only fly because he's exposed to the rays of the yellow, yellow sun. Yeah, maybe, so maybe, you, you know, know, being on earth. So they just don't explain it. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that, but it is kind of a, if he's really motivated to get back to the UFO and he can levitate. Right. I mean, it's clearly, 
they wanted the moment where E.T. is in the basket and they fly across the moon. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, iconic yeah. moment, like literally icon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a cultural icon. Mm-hmm. So that was the pretext. But if he could do that halfway through the movie, why couldn't he do it at the beginning? I think it's just a convenient plot hole, to be honest. So you do think it's a plot hole? I do, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, the first time he levitates an object is in Elliot's room when yeah. he's spinning the yep. the balls. It looks very purposeful. He knows exactly what yeah, he's he doing. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. He has control over the, those powers. Yeah. So I think it's just a convenient plot So he's hole. not discovering those powers as he's as he's going along. I, I never noticed him discover. It, yeah. it seemed, again, very purposeful. Yeah. I agree the other thing you might um, want to consider is that maybe he's only able to levitate to a certain degree, like maybe 50 feet in the air or 60 feet in the air. I mean, he knew he was never going to be able to catch up to the, the UFO. I mean, he took a kid and a bike well, well over the trees. And then mm-hmm. later, five kids, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Five kids and bikes. We're looking at a solid, you're looking at at least 600 pounds. Yeah, you're not helping your case, you're tough. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, um, okay, so so that's the first big one. Uh, the next one, how did E.T. communicate that he had to go to the woods to phone home? And how did Elliot communicate the plan to E.T.? So the whole part of the strategy, it was kind of their little Ocean's Eleven scheme of we're going to dress up E.T. in the ghost outfit, pass her off as Gertie, and we're going to hide Gertie outside up by the fire road. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, the whole time, E.T. knows he has to pretend to be Gertie. Uh, kind of. It's a little clumsy. Right. Um, they had a second me, link. That's true, but they only convey emotions, I think. I don't know. Psychic link does resolve a lot. The psychic link does account for a lot. It it does. Um, I mean, I I think that's something that could happen off screen. It it doesn't necessarily need to be drawn out for us. But if you really want to explain it, they could have drew pictures. If they went through that whole effort of showing the scene of E.T. phone home, that's a five minute scene where him and Gertie are trying to figure out that E.T. is trying to say, I got to call my house. I got to call home and go home. Right. So, you know, you could argue that over the course of the next five hours, they went very slowly, meticulously. Okay, Halloween is a pagan tradition where we disguise <laughs> ourselves as dead macabre images, and you have to pretend to be as my sister, and mom can't see you. Which to me, that's that reinforces the kind of allegorical dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Et just seems to know that he is a secret from the mom, right? Because. When she comes home while E.T. is at home at, at school, or while Elliot's at school, E.T.'s at home, mom comes home. E.T. hides himself as a stuffed animal. Mm-hmm. It's not Elliot telling him to hide. But in the subplot scene, E.T. goes downstairs and uses the fridge or whatever yeah. right in front of her. So why does he hide in the closet? I don't know. I don't know what's going on in his head. <laughs> I don't get it. Uh, to go back to, to the plot hole, though, yeah. Um, I don't think they really need to have all that communicated. Somehow E.T. needs to say, I need to go to the woods, and then they can plan the rest. They just need to get him there. They don't necessarily need to communicate all that with E.T. They just throw something over him. So then the next question is, why do they have to go all the way out into the woods? <laughs> why can't he just set it up in the backyard and you know phone home from the backyard? Magnetic shields, man. Todd to answer this. Magnetic shields. Magnetic shields. 5G They're, network. It, the 5G network is stopping. Hey, man, they, <laughs> they, they got like uh, a lot of these houses are, 
are encompassed in like this electricity that creates magnetic shield or a magnetic field around the house and they got to get past that out to the rural areas man okay so for whatever reason they just had to go on the journey which the that's the real reason they just we need to have a journey we need to have a set piece we need to have a conflict we wouldn't yeah. have gotten that cool bike shot we would not have the cool bike shot this is what i mean is it, it's it starts to get a little like okay i'll buy it but why we never know why so which drives back i mean obviously it's a very successful it's one of the most successful movies ever made mm-hmm. um a major blockbuster at the same time you know we don't really understand a lot of the rules of the universe um which, you know it's it's actually a good argument where you don't have to understand all the rules of the universe you just know you need to do something i think that when you're talking in in terms of cinema and, and movies mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need to explain some things that you would have to in other forms of storytelling yeah um i think me as a viewer i'm more willing to buy into things I'm, I'm not always so nitpicky i mean i do look into plot holes and sometimes i will be nitpicky but in really well-made movies convenient plot points don't necessarily take away from the story if it's done in a good cinematic way. Okay. I'll buy that. Uh, I do, as a writer, I'm very interested in respecting the rules of the universe. And any, every time you break the rules, you're basically saying, like, just just go along with it. You Just ignore it. Which to right. me is, it's a little bit, you're, you're, you know, you're asking your audience to emotionally invest in these stakes. And as soon as you bend the rules, you're taking away from the stakes. I think to a certain degree, he's got a freaking alien in his basket. It's like, are you going to be able to, you know, it's just magic. It's just magic. It's sci-fi magic. Am I going to question anything else that happens after this? I mean, yeah, yeah. we've already gone so far with E.T. and just the whole idea behind how we found him and lured him in. That those little conveniences of, of plot don't really take away from, from the stakes. The okay. thing they add to the stakes. Okay, I've got another one. Why did E.T. go missing after phoning home? I don't have an answer for that one. I... He f- they do the whole Halloween scene. They stay up all night. And the next morning, Elliot wakes up hungover with E.T. missing. Well, Why did he go missing? I think E.T. knew what was coming. And he didn't know if Elliot could handle it. What do you mean? I don't think he, what was coming. He already knows that his father had left him. Now they've got this psychic link where they're connected emotionally or in some metaphysical way. And he's he has a good understanding of his profile. I mean, of Elliot's profile. He's a you know he's a young kid, nine, ten years old. Um, he's already been confronted with a very very difficult situation, losing his father. Um, maybe he's in some way trying to sever that connection. Maybe he's showing some sort of regret and realizing that, oh crap, I, I've done this to this kid and I love him. I don't want to hurt him. Oh, so you think E.T. ran away from him knowing that this was just getting like way over their heads. Yeah. He's like, uh, but he's phoning home. He's he's successfully phoning home. Well, that's what I'm saying is he's phoning home. Like in the scene, in the scene, they show E.T. saying like, oh, it's working because they literally have Elliot say it's working. It's working. Yeah. So it's like he's getting closer to his objective. 
So this was one of those one of those scenes. I, I was talking to one friend of mine. And he said that well, it's because ET made them levitate and it exhausted him. And because he levitated through the sky, it took all this power out of him. So you know he he was going to die. I'm like, how? Based on what? What other scene gives any kind of sense of economy to this magic? Where right. if you make people levitate, it saps your life force away. And, and even if that was the case, why is he? You know, God knows how far. Exactly. So if he's exactly. So that means E.T., as he's dying, has to get up and leave far enough away that he can't find it. Because Elliot still had to ride his bike home. And it took him a while to get home because they flew for a while. So Elliot's feeling sick like he's dying. He's got to go at least three, four miles to get out of the woods back home. And E.T.'s wandered off. I'm just saying that plot point, it's not so much a plot hole as it is. Um, I don't think it's justified. It, it feels like they're like, we need some sort of conflict that tells the audience that things are going bad. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think they could have come up with a reason why he went missing. Mm-hmm. And they could have shown some sort of some sort of scene that shows E.T. trying to do something. Like maybe he ran off for some reason. That's a scene where I feel like it felt like conflict for the sake of conflict. I think the only justification that that scene has, and, and I do agree with you, but I think the only justification that that scene really has is the spaceship doesn't immediately respond. So we can kind of maybe infer that E.T. is very emotional. So he's a drama queen. Yeah. E.T.'s a bit of a drama queen. I mean, if he's anything like Roger, then yeah. <laughs> Roger from American Dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, did you guys look into Cinta Supremus? A little no. bit. Okay. Do, do you know what it means? Like, why Why is this kid yelling Cinta Supremus while he's yelling back? Zero charisma. You're zero charisma. You're Z- Cinta Supremus at the bus stop. Scene. Ultimate, ultimate zero. Or ultimate. Yeah. Supremus. Yeah, exactly. It's Latin for ultimate zero. Why, why do they have that scene in there? Because they're nerds. Well, no, I remember when my sister came home from like high school and she had been learning Latin because I used to teach Latin in school. And I remember mm-hmm. my sister coming home and using the term Simper Ubi Sub Ubi. And she yeah, thought it was hilarious. Always wear your underwear. Yeah. Always wear your underwear. It's like, why? Yeah. you know, it's like the kids just kind of throw out these little ideas and, and if they can make it an insult, great. You know, so Cintus Supremus See, thing. So, I remember when I was a kid and I heard the term extra ET, the extraterrestrial, mm-hmm. you know, and that was such an exotic sounding word, extraterrestrial. Yeah. And you're selling this to little kids. Yeah. Um, I think it was. And, you know, ever since ET came out, now kids are like extraterrestrial. Oh, it's ET. That's that's ET's full name. Yeah. Um, and then it's not till later that you learn extraterrestrial means, uh, you know, beyond this world or above this mm-hmm. world, which, again, ties into that beautiful theme of Spielberg trying to say, you know, filmmaking is about transporting you beyond this world. Um, but, you know, the, that's the scene where we're introduced to the idea of extraterrestrial. So I think that's the reason why they had, you know, Sintas Prima, Zero Charisma, the throwing around these complex words. Mm-hmm. They're saying these are these are nerdy kids that would have a little bit more of an expanded vocabulary. And one of them says, oh, he's he's like, he's a spaceman. Oh, like an extraterrestrial. 
mm-hmm. and it's you know that that nerdy pretentious kid that's like uh, it's like well the, actually you mean it's an extraterrestrial you know and there's your poster there's the whole name of the movie yeah it would be um, really anticlimactic when he's like he he's he's having this moment where he kind of names him ET except for he's like hey alien. <laughs> alien, alien, alien has alien to phone home. Alien has to yeah. That's not as that's not as iconic. Call. Alien phone home. Yeah, yeah you Space know what's what, what's, a, home. what's a real bummer is when you find out ET's real name is Gilbert. <laughs> Gilbert. Gilbert. That's true. They didn't have the me Jane you Tarzan scene. Yeah, yeah. ET could easily. Express his name. See, ET was hiding something. <laughs> yeah. See, he wouldn't. Even, he's just using his avatar. He's not even using his real name. I just All right. Here's ET. another plot. Or here, here's another plot hole. I actually think this is a pretty big plot hole. Okay. So Keys, he he's the guy with the hazmat suit that comes in. Yeah. Comes up to Elliot and says, "I saw the machine. I saw it out in the woods. Um, I've had them too." And then Elliot escapes. Uh, they he and his brother take off with the, with the friends on the bike, and they all fly over the forest, and then they go back to where the machine was to rendezvous with the UFO. And Keys didn't think to leave a government agent waiting with the with UFO machine, so they just land there where the machine is still functioning, and there's not a single agent in sight. And on top of that, when they're taking off and running, everyone's running around trying to figure out where they're going. And it's like it, it's not completely logical that they're going to where the machine is. Like you see them, they see them fly through the air. Keys should have been the first person there with a the whole team waiting, ready for them. And the only reason they weren't is because, you know, they didn't want the government invading this this tender moment. Sure. What do you, what do you think, Todd? What do you mean? What I, I got an idea. You have an idea? Yeah. Like, is that a plot hole, or, do you, or is there a good reason for that? Why Why was there not an agent or several agents, or why was it not a quarantine machine, an alien-built machine that's communicating with UFOs? That would be – and they know that it's a machine communicating with UFOs. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a justification for that, Todd? Um, it, it's, it's hard to justify that one. It's true. I, I don't know. Um. I'm trying to come up with something. To be very honest, I don't. I don't have it. I don't have any way of defending that. Because oh, yeah. I would. I mean, as 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 an organizer, my <laughs> I would post someone right there. They'd be, if anything, you'd have a dude in yeah. a black car. If I was running that team, I would. I wouldn't turn it off, and I wouldn't sabotage it. But I'd be staking out people watching yeah. it, trying to study it. I mean, the justification I, mean, I have for it because I did think about it when when the movies was going on, but. I think that they try to portray Keys as uh, a sympathetic character, somebody that's mm-hmm. nice that wants the best for E.T. Yeah. I mean, he has that moment with Elliot where he's like, you know, I, I've been waiting for this for since I was 10 or whatever he says. Yeah. So you kind of get the idea that Keys maybe actually does want the best for E.T. And so the justification I have for it is that Keys knew about that but didn't tell the other agents because he ultimately wants E.T. to be able to get home. Mm. So the guy who's responsible so for running the, the team. The agent that tripped, he tripped all the other agents on the way out the door. 
He's like, oh, what happened, guys? He, but he is he is spearheading the team. He is the team right. leader. Right. Doesn't believe in his own team enough to say we all want the same thing here. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe maybe the government's bad. And and it's his team. And, and he's, he's the one who hired all these guys. I don't know if he's the one that hired. Be somebody above keys. See, I've always. Well, it's his team. I always saw him as kind of a rogue. He put agent, together his team. Like he was like. I don't know if he put the team together. I know that he was put on the team. He may be, like, maybe there's, like, a military element where they're like, yes, we must harness this, you know, whatever. And Keyes is like, hey, man, he's got a home. He's got kids. <laughs> he's got a life back in E.T. land. We got to. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm calling plot hole on this okay. one. I, I do think it's a plot hole, but I was able to justify it when I was watching it in that way. Yeah, and it, it wasn't as big of a deal. I mean, probably. it's Peter Coyote. But it, it is a plot hole. Peter, it's Peter Coyote, yeah. man. Yeah, Peter Coyote. Yeah, he's he's, he's like the ultimate rogue. Yeah. I mean, you cast him in that as a rogue, dude. He's like, he's the rogue. <laughs> Peter Coyote, man. You put, yeah. uh, you know, if you put somebody, I mean, Jim Caviezel in that position. I mean, Jim Caviezel is probably like yeah. ten years old. But if you put him in that position. Um, he's going to have like the soft hearted, hard edge kind of guy, you know, it's like, but Peter Coyote, man, he's from like the radical underground of the 1960s and he was a playwright and he wrote really great stuff and he was a weirdo. And so casting him in that part, I think you kind of go, yeah, he probably, he probably might look the other way on some things. That's, that's my justification for any of that. It's just kind of kind of like hey man i know the machine i i just don't buy for a second that there would not be at least an agent staked out at that uh machine but i mean even so he catches up to them and he's watching yeah and you know who finds him you know who finds him gertie Mm -hmm. she says stop they're over there gertie calls out right they're driving around not knowing where they're going and gertie says stop they're over there and it's like he already knows where the but keys already knows where the machine is Mm-hmm. And it doesn't occur to him. Oh, they're going to the machine. Let's go rendezvous with all with them. They have Gertie lost. come calls out and says they're over there. He's lost. I'm calling. I'm calling plot hole. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, here's another one. This isn't a plot yeah, hole. Like it's a funny goes- cinematic convenience. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> uh, so this this one isn't so much a plot hole. It's just a cinematic convenience, which is the magical cul-de-sac. So Elliot and his family live on this cul-de-sac that's kind of on a hill and their house is like raised just above it. And there's this kind of, uh, it's a dead end cul-de-sac that kind of loops and several driveways feed into that little round circle. Um, And they keep showing shot after shot with like a Winnebago, all these mysterious, suspicious looking cars parked outside of it. And it never occurs to, to at least the mom to say, well, why are all these government license plates parked outside my house in the cul-de-sac? <laughs> and they're literally waiting till she leaves, and they show an army. They literally show, like, they have this great tra- uh, tracking shot where we pass a Winnebago, we dolly down, and then we go with all these other people close, like opening up and pulling all this gear out of their car and then go invade the house and do all this security thing. She's pulling out. She didn't notice the army of cars parked outside her house. Like, what is going on in this cul-de-sac that nobody's even questioning? 
that there's literally an army that's staking out their house. I got an answer for this. All right, go she's, for it. She's kind of got a, a Karen haircut, right? She's like a clueless <laughs> white suburban mom. All right. She's probably like, oh, those better be the cops I called on Jerry, my loud neighbor, last night. <laughs> Freaking Jerry. They better, they better be looking out for those kids selling drugs up the street. She's probably happy about it. As, as she oh, drives yeah. by the window, it, it, it begs. Thanks, guys. Plot hole. Uh, okay, and now this is the biggest one that I think is absolutely hilarious when you actually evaluate it for what it is. The astronaut scene. Mm. So uh, Elliot is sick. He's in the bathroom. Gertie goes and gets the mom. And for the first time, uh, the mom sees Elliot and E.T. And at first she's like, oh, what's, that's great. What is that? And then all of a sudden she's like, what the fuck is that? And she's like, we got to get you to the hospital. So she picks up her son. They start running out, opens the door, and an astronaut, a NASA astronaut, walking on the moon kind of astronaut, walks in through the door like Frankenstein. <laughs> like, it's the only time we see the astronauts is in this one scene. Yeah. So then she runs back, and then all of a sudden another astronaut walks in through the garage. And she's like, oh, what the fuck? And it's like a, a, a horror yeah. house scene. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, she turns around and the blinds open and an astronaut is opening a window, sticking his arms through. And I'm like, so the first thing I want to know is like, what was their plan of attack? We're going to dress up in astronaut spacesuits. And Jerry over here is like, oh, you guys got the garage. I'm going to take the front door. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to take the window. That doesn't make any sense. Why did that guy open the window? And he's like, uh. That doesn't make any sense. Because they're like, here's a window. You're not going to get through this one. (laughs) Got a window. I got the window covered. (laughs) Um, You think in Spielberg's mind, that was just like like the the monster moment of the movie? It's absolutely the horror house zombie. Absolutely. The question is, is this is where the logic I think shifts into the allegory. This is where I think like, what is Spielberg saying about NASA? Because like, you know, this, this the conspiracy theory side of this is just like, you know, he, this is Spielberg trying to say that NASA is actually up to some sort of deception here or something <laughs> like that, which is just fun, playful mythology. But, um, but the question is, is we never see the astronauts again. After this, we always see hazmat suits. Mm-hmm. It's just this one scene where it turns into a horror scene for her. And I, I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why they have astronauts in moon suits walking into oh. the house. I mean, there's no practical reason for it. Okay. But, I mean, it's... What's your best guess? It, it's it's these people that are humans, but they look more alien than anything else, and E.T. even. Okay. So I, I think it just works well cinematically. Okay. So it's just an emotional. Hang on. Why didn't? Why weren't they wearing hazmat suits? Hang on here. Okay. Again, no practice. First of all, Adam, you, you've all right, been on time. a you've been on a film set before. You know, you got the costume lady. She's got a big old mm-hmm. truck. She's like, okay, here are the hazmat suits. <laughs> and the director's like, man, I just can't. I don't know, man. And she's like, well, I got these astronaut suits in the back there. They're pretty cool. And then. Uh, huh? That's true. I can okay, see you that. can see that. Now, I the other thing yeah. is, is they don't. We got to use. Them. I would rewrite it just so there's a reason. They don't know. 
I mean, yeah. you got the moon suit. Okay, so the moon, the astronaut suit, it, it is signaling that, ooh, this is, you know, big government coming in. But I think it's also has to, I mean, when I was a kid. Libertarian propaganda, I man. I remember thinking that, you know, as a kid, I remember seeing these astronauts coming in and, and I was thinking, oh, well, they don't know what the what kind of pressurized situation they're going into. <laughs> You know, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, spores, molds, and fungus, man. You don't know what's there. So it's just. uh... So so basically the NASA suit was just an extra precaution. Yeah, they're the first ones going in. They don't know how E.T. has, maybe E.T. has repressurized their house to be an alien environment. Maybe, maybe he has laser eyes. Open the door to depressurize (laughs) Which is why they waited yeah. through the window. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Sure. It's just a. It's an. It's an interesting choice that I wonder about. Um, and the truth of it is, I didn't even notice. I didn't notice till I literally watched it this last time. Oh yeah. Preparation for the show. Like I've watched it. You know, I've probably watched it twenty times, and I've I've always just thought uh, astronauts, hazmat suits, whatever. Same thing. Yeah. But when you think about it practically. It, they're full-on moon suits. These are moonwalking mm-hmm. suits. Mm-hmm. These are not hazmat suits. Yeah, really straight out of MTV. Man. Yeah, now it does to me. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And this is what 1982. Yeah. yeah, that was that was right about the time that you know MTV was born. Yeah, MTV. That was like. Uh, Which, yeah. by the way, can I bring up the scene, the pizza scene, oh, man, where they're listening to Jim Carroll and the Dark Circuit? Oh, yes, we need to talk about that. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you if you picked up yeah. on the song. People Who Died, man. 82. This was, you know, it was an amazing yeah, song. So... And Spielberg was smart enough to put it in his film as a time capsule for the rest of, the, of their life. I mean, honestly, it was a, it was kind of an insider, inside baseball song. You know, like not every punk rock kid totally. was listening to that, you know, Jim Carroll. The author of, you know, yeah. Basketball Diaries and other great poetry. And that song came up yeah. and it just kind of it encapsulated that moment. Like in this pure, beautiful time. Yeah, like I remember discovering Jim Carroll when I was, you know, maybe 14 yeah. years old. And, you know, listening to yep. Dead Kennedys and Dead Milkmen and John Giorno yep. and all those guys. And um, and just being like, and it, it wasn't until as an adult that I saw E.T. and I'm like, oh, my God. This is legit yeah, punk rock up. roots right in a mainstream ch- right? children's movie. <laughs> and the song is a, a list of people who died. In the way that they, died, that they yeah. died. Which just, it makes me love Spielberg even more. Like, he's one of my favorite directors. He's a brilliant, he is, he's completely changed filmmaking as a whole. But on top of that, the fact that he just has that punk rock aesthetic to him. That's totally subversive. It's It's completely, like, underneath the... He's just smuggling in punk rock culture. It just yeah, makes me love him even more. Absolutely. All right. So, um, okay. So I think that wraps up plot holes. I, everything else I yeah. think is coherent. And even that, I still kind of don't care. It's still one of my favorite movies. I feel it. I'm brokenhearted when E.T. is leaving. Um, I told, And Henry Thomas is just gives one of the best performances you've ever seen. Did you guys oh, ever yeah. see the audition? That Henry Absolutely. Thomas gave Absolutely. for this part. No. Go watch it. Go look Ugh. it up on YouTube. I'll put a link in the in the description. You see Henry Thomas when he's about eight years old auditioning for the part. 
and it's Spielberg asking him, you know, well, what if, you know, what if your dog doesn't survive? What if you're, what if you go home and your dog's not alive? And it, and he's he's playing with it, you know, he's he's a director playing with an actor and just saying what if scenarios. And this Henry Thomas gives such a good performance, and he's like nine years old. And at the very end, Spielberg's just like, all right, kid, all right, all right, you got the part. It was just, it's one of those great classic moments and you're like absolutely like that you, you got to watch it it's it's a beautiful audition that's like that's awesome. after that there's no one else that could have that kind of depth and that's what I love about Spielberg is he he just knows how to pull out these emotional performances he gives that emotional depth he adds the emotional depth there have been so many movies about a a kid befriending an alien that just didn't resonate and the reason that doesn't resonate is because they weren't speaking on this level it wasn't, that's why I don't buy for a second that this is some sort of like, you know, alien exploiting a kid. This is a deep, meaningful metaphor or allegory about a child dealing with loss and dealing with like the, the hole in his heart that's being filled by fascination and imagination. Um, cool. So that's my takeaway from ET. What about you guys? What is, as filmmakers, as writers, as storytellers, what kind of takeaways? How does this inform your storytelling, your craft? Jake, I, w- I want to hear what you're, what you have to say. The takeaway. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll start off by saying I think Adam, you're romantic. You gotta wake up, man. <laughs> you're probably right. Because <laughs> <laughs> ET is taking advantage of that little boy. Ugh. Whole movie. My childhood is That's crying. <laughs> you're wrong. No, but I, I as a, a filmmaker, I think there's so much to take away from this movie and, and so much that is being taken away from this movie even today I mean you see it in Stranger Things Super mm. 8 not that long ago Yeah, like this movie has impact yep. and so I, I think it's really important to go back rewatch it find out why it's so successful and I, I think a lot of what we talked about today is is uh, a big reason for that mm-hmm. absolutely Todd? I think it is um I think that it's kind of defined the mythology of our time. In a lot of ways, I think that they were building up to it in the 60s and 70s. You know, Star Wars was a big part of that. You know, Star Wars was a big part of us kind of feeling this different universe where there was just in a massive amount of diversity, but it felt old. And and then we have E.T. where... We're kind of we, we went through the 40s, 50s, and 60s where there was a lot of kind of folk tales of, oh, there was a saucer that beamed up these two dudes in Maine and they showed up a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. Well, then you have this ET that shows up, you know, in the 80s, early 80s, that kind of defined what the experience might be like in a very gentle way. You know, it's just a very gentle kind of story about a an ET, uh, an you know, an alien who just wanted to go home, and you know, eventually became involved with this family inadvertently. Um, but you know, they they needed each other for whatever reason, and I I just think that mm-hmm. um, I forget who has said that um, the artists of their of each generation will define the mythology of their time. Do you remember that? Mm. I think it was... Um, no, I don't know, but that's that's a beautiful quote. Yeah, and and I, I remember thinking about it, that, that and thinking about, well, these are, you know, you know, these conspiracy theories. 
coming forward into like you know we have all these um conspirators in this story people conspiring yeah. to harness the alien people conspiring to save the alien people conspiring you know and so i think in to a lot of ways secret. what's that to keep it secret yeah. to keep it secret they all want to keep it secret to be honest mm-hmm. um but they all want to uh harness it for themselves which is interesting mm-hmm. you know Good why point. Why do we just accept that, that, you know, the military is going to harness it, but they're going to keep it for themselves. And, but we kind of just know that the military does what it does. We don't, we just accept it because we don't even know why, why would they want to keep it secret? Um, you know, because the whole mass hysteria thing, I mean, I think most people in this world have kind of said, um, well, if they're aliens, then okay. You know, I mean, I love I love the idea that there are aliens, but I'm not convinced that there are any because, again, I you know, there's no empirical evidence that says that there's always inferences. But I just think the mythology of our time definitely became came through these movies like uh, Close Encounters and uh, even Starman. Do you remember Starman with Jeff Bridges? Oh, I love Starman. I love. Yeah, it's a very similar story. It is. Almost the same story. story. Yeah. Um, I love Starman. That was yeah, great. Starman, Bridges. Cocoon, another great one where we just kind of feel these. It's a much lighter. Geriatric E.T. Geriatric E.T., sure, sure. Yeah. But those those dudes were cute. I, E.T. I, in a retirement home. Yeah, <laughs> they were cute. I, yeah. I, I saw the movie recently, and it, it doesn't really hold up like E.T. does, but it's, it's cute. I mean, Steve Gutenberg, you know, really – firing on all cylinders there he's a good um, boy gutenberg's a good boy that's Steve. he's a, he's a good, good he's, a, he's good kid. a good kid he's a good kid yeah but yeah uh, there's no. a thing i wanted to there's one thing i wanted to talk about uh, real quick is just this little subtle thing that is totally spielberg um referencing himself and referencing uh, what i think is kind of like a friend friendly rivalry with lucas which is that scene where elliot is giving et an orientation in his house <laughs> First, he comes over and he and he picks up the Star Wars figures and he starts giving him an orientation on all of the Star Wars figures and he says, "This is, this is a, uh, this is Boba Fett, this C three PO. These are you know they're aliens, which is cool because he's saying like this is my alien movie, right? <laughs> and then after that, and he goes and look over here. This is a shark. The shark eats all the little fish. Now, notoriously, Jaws was the first ever blockbuster. It changed <laughs> yeah. the way studios make movies." And I think that was Spielberg saying, sure, sure, like uh, Star Wars comes along and broke my record. But I set that record. I set I started the race to begin with. And then funny that yeah. E.T. Bre- then breaks the Star Wars record. Exactly. <laughs> I think well, that's, actually, that's Spielberg saying like this. This is his kind of friendly rivalry with his peers, his filmmaking peers that went on to make some of the most influential films of our culture. Yeah. Well, George Lucas actually took out an entire page in the Hollywood reporter back when ET did set that record. And he had this hand-drawn picture of all of these, um, star Wars characters, um, surrounding a picture of ET and congratulating Steven Spielberg. That's and great. That's awesome. I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah. You have to, it, I'm going to track a, that down. Great, yeah, track that down because it's totally worth checking out. And I know that, yeah. I mean, Steven Spielberg Which only was proves slated. the point about E.T. George Lucas actually sent um, Steven Spielberg uh, 
Oh no, Steven Spielberg sent George Lucas a, a letter on I think it's either Variety or Hollywood Reporter. It said last week Star Wars moved ahead of Jaws in domestic film rentals. My hyperspace performance package really did its trick. Congratulations on the cantina crowd and all the forces of your imagination that make Star Wars so worthy of the throne. Where it will, your pal Steven. And they have a picture of um, R2-D2 fishing with a fishing pole uh, with the jaws. Yeah. Yeah. And Spielberg, Spielberg was slated to direct um, uh, the third Star Wars film, uh, back yeah. to, or Return of the Jedi. And yeah. he had to step away because he was such an integral member of the Director's Guild. So, And he could yeah. not um, cross the Director's Guild to do that. And so they – and Lucas uh, – just kind of said, no, we're keeping this independent. We're not gonna, we're not gonna be part of the part of all that. So yeah, I just yeah. Uh, there. There's always been that kind of um, kindness between them, but also kind of a little bit of jabs left in, you know. Back yeah, it's like it's together. artistic it's rivalry. Really Absolutely, it's yeah. like you guys. I'm constantly competing with you guys, mm-hmm. uh, and it pushes me to be a better artist. And losing, <laughs> 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 I do what I can. Whatever. Uh, cool. All right, so uh, that wraps up our Vivis section for the week. Uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, classic movie, uh, defined a huge part of my childhood, and it's part of the reason why I wanted to grow up and make movies. Largely E.T., Star Wars, a lot of the movies of my childhood, my generation, or why I was so excited to get into filmmaking. And people like Spielberg were, were a big part of that, that, uh, that journey for me. You want a Vivis section. Okay, so uh, real quick, let's let's announce the movie for next week so you guys can watch it. Every, every single week we're going to announce a movie, then you can watch it that week, and then you can pick up the, the or watch the episode and uh, go through the deconstruction with this. We want to make sure that you're always watching the movies in advance. That's when you're going to get the most out of uh, these kind of episodes, because then we'll actually do a deconstruction, and they're full of spoilers. Um, yeah, so what movie are we doing next week, Todd? Uh, the next the movie next week is uh, Scarlett Johansson and Joaquin Phoenix in Her. It's a Spike Jones joint. Nice. I love that movie. Spike <laughs> <laughs> cool. That'll be a good discussion. That's, uh, yeah. that's another one of my Absolutely. favorites. Absolutely. I love that movie. That wraps it up. Uh, if, be sure and send your writing questions to storykinetics.com. Be sure to subscribe. Click subscribe and click the bell uh, at the bottom for our YouTube channel. And also join the discussion at the Art of Story Facebook group. Thanks for having this discussion, guys. Uh, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. Hey, I got a gun. Can I be a gun? Hey, go through it,